<clears throat> so as we have said in various ways this whole time, this whole weeks, that all aspects of our path, all the different techniques and focuses of our path are really about freeing our hearts and minds from the influence, from the drive of greed, of hatred, of confusion. And that wisdom and compassion naturally arise when our mind isn't so obsessed with these things, when it's not holding fast to whatever it's holding fast to, holding fast to anything. As Joseph said last night in his talk that with compassion, when we purify, when our own hearts and minds are purified or are not so enthralled to these kalesa, to these torments, then wisdom and compassion are the natural expression, naturally arise. Larry Rosenberg said once, yeah, I, I really like him, he cracks me up. Uh, so the best thing we can do for others is to develop wisdom and compassion, ease within ourselves. Then we stop bothering other people. <laughs> so tonight I want to talk about actually a specific uh, sutta of the Buddha that I really like it. it. It covers a lot of ground, but he's really working, uh, seeing how it's not only just the really focused meditation, but all aspects of our life, really, we can be working with how our minds are either feeding the kalesa, how the way we're relating to our experience feeds wanting aversion, or how it starves it. And I think Guy or someone said that's a a metaphor that he uses a lot, feeding and starving. So it's all aspects of life are part of our path. So there's something called the three watas, the three rounds of samsara, is one way it's said, or the three rounds of purification, depending if you want to look at the half full or half empty way of looking at it. And uh, when we look at it in this way, I don't know, I just, I just like it. So the three watas are, this is obvious, it's sila, samadhi, panya. The three watas are the three, the three rounds of samsara. The first is deeds or speech. And when we act from kalesa, we experience the torments, the kalesa of transgression, right? We've actually transgressed to the point of acting, of speaking in a way that brings harm to ourselves, harm to another. And sila is what protects us from the torments of transgression. Sila, the, which of course requires mindfulness, requires paying attention, it requires good intention, requires wisdom, you know. But when, when we are protected by sila, we naturally experience the freedom from remorse because remorse comes. Like many people have said you've been experiencing just memories of even very small unwholesome things you said or did in the past. And not even you know, giving yourself a lot of trouble about it, but just experiencing the remorse, the sadness, the pain of that. Oh, yeah, I didn't understand then. I could have acted better. And that's, that's just, we're free from that when we're protected by sila from the torments of transgression, and we offer others the gift of fearlessness. You know, that's one of the lovely things here. More or less, <laughs> we're giving each other the gift of fearlessness. So the second level of rounds of samsara is the obsessive 
kalesa, the obsessive defilements, when we're just not acting on it, but just completely caught up in spinning. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of just spinning in greed or self-hatred. You take your pick from your choice of favorite ones. But obsessive really describes it, right? And we're protected from that by samadhi. When the, the mind, the chitta, the heart is collected, and you've all experienced that too, whether you want to acknowledge it to yourselves or not. But when the mind and the heart is not so distracted, when the attention is more unified and collected, it's as if these obsessive quality of kalesa don't have room to get in. And, that, and, and there's many, many levels of this purification, but that's one of the lovely things about a more collected, unified mind. It just feels so peaceful not to have all this stuff yammering at us all the time, not to be driven by that. So that suppresses. And then the third level of the, of the round of samsara is called the latent. Latent means underlying. It's not in evidence at the moment, but it could arise at any time. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to see like big brothers watching you, but the latent, and that's described as the underlying potential for kalesa, for these torments of mind to arise given the proper conditions. And this is not, I'm not saying this to breed fear, you know, like, oh my God, I'm working this hard, but at any time it could attack me from any side. But haven't you sometimes noticed that? I mean, (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) And actually you notice this level more like at this point in a retreat when your mind actually is calmer and you're not as caught up in the huge stuff that was there in the beginning and people come and say, oh my God, I'm just seeing clinging all the time now. But it's on a much more subtle level where you walk in our favorite place, the dining room, and you can be feeling quite mindful, quite present. You're not off in a train of thought. And it doesn't take much, right? Someone gets in your way, someone slops some food, someone sits in your place, someone who knows what. And sometimes the mindfulness is strong and no reaction arises. And it's like, wow, notice that. Wow. At that point, even the latent underlying tendency wasn't functioning. Wisdom's getting stronger. You know, non-greed is getting stronger. But the other times, when you're just minding your own business and that happens, and like, boom, a burst of anger so quick, or a burst of greed so quick. Someone told me years ago they were really mindful and had been working with greed, and it wasn't there. And they were walking past, um, probably at tea time, walking past the food table with no intention to take food whatsoever, very, very mindful. And then they saw, as in a dream, as they walked past the bowl of oranges, their hand reached out, took the orange, and said, whose hand is that, taking that orange, you know? Just, just small ways. <laughs> so this underlying potential, this is where we can get discouraged, but this is, is um, seen through by panya, by wisdom. The Buddha said greed, hatred, and delusion, not totally. This is like the, the most subtle level And this isn't abandoned completely through acts, but through wisely seeing. So this sutta 
this latent underlying level that can, when the, it's like a seed, you know, and when the seeds are, did someone read about seeds here the other day? Okay. <laughs> and when the seed is there and the conditions are ripe, it can sprout. That's why so many times when you're reading the suttas and the Buddha's talking about his full awakening, he says it's cut off like a palm stump. No more can grow from it. It's kind of alluding to this. Nothing else can grow. So one of the definitions of complete full enlightenment in the Theravada system is that these asavas are abandoned. These asavas is the word for these latent underlying potential. It's not like something's really there. It's not sitting in you like a big ball of sludge, you know. It's just when the conditions are right, something could arise. So imagine that you walk into the dining room and the most annoying thing that always makes you crazy happens and your mind just goes, "Uh uh-huh, may you be happy and keeps going. Lovely. Imagine it was always like that. That's what they're talking about. It's possible, you know. They wouldn't tell us we could do it. But we can notice it now. Can notice the times it doesn't arise. Notice the times it does arise with interest. So just to describe these asavas, this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. You know, who's quite the um, the most well-known of the current um, interpreters and translators from Pali to English. I was listening to his, he has a whole series of talks on each sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. So like, you know, it's a lot of talks. I'm only up to four. <laughs> so, and he's talking about these, this talk, uh, this sutta, the three asavas, the three poisons. And they're defined as three specific ones. And it's not greed, hatred, and delusion for a change. <laughs> it's a little, a little more subtle, actually. So they're described, the asavas, he says, are the, the three deepest, most fundamental tendencies or drives that can keep the process of samsara in motion when we're not aware of them, the most likely the biases of mind that arise when we're not paying attention, when we're just in robot mode. And this is kama asava, or sensual desire, sense desire, bhava asava, which is a a bhava attachment to being. It's usually translated as being, attachment to continued existence. And of course, avija asava, ignorance, seeing things wrongly, these three. And this one interesting thing Bhikkhu Bodhi said is that you'll notice that dosa, hatred, is not listed as one of the asavas. So I just, for all you aversive types out there, is finally one little piece of, you know, hopeful news (laughs) that hatred is not considered one of the qualities that binds being to samsara. I mean, it said it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's not a wholesome thing, but it's so much suffering, we see it more quickly. So these are subtle. Uh, sense desire, bhava asava, attachment to being, attachment and ignorance. So these are considered the three asavas. And again, it's not the state itself, but the, this tendency, these seeds could sprout given the right conditions, which usually include not being present, not being mindful, include a mind that's confused. So I just want to again mention that there's plenty of other wholesome seeds that are also easily sprouting given the right conditions, and that's what we've been cultivating here all this time. So it's not just that we're in this hopeless rounds of samsara and you know forget about it. 
is that we actually have been spending a lot of time all through, not just here, but through your whole spiritual path of recognizing the wholesome, of feeding the wholesome. So you walk in the dining room, someone does something totally outrageous in your mind, goes, okay, may you be happy. That's a wholesome wisdom, non-aversion or loving kindness sprouting. Notice that. Or you walk in a situation where normally you'd feel really self-judging. You know, you'd feel really shy and embarrassed. You walk in and there's just, there's just nothing, it's just calmness. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Notice that. So this sutta that I want to talk about is called All the Asavas. And the Buddha um, actually lists seven different aspects that we can pay attention to. Very practical. And it's nothing new, but it just I really like this because it just kind of points my attention in different directions, all of which are functioning to purify our heart and mind of these habits. It's not just get into the deepest samadhi you can and stay there. It doesn't work. It's not just, well, stay there until you can finally become an arhat. It's like, actually, we can work with other aspects. So all of these are, are based in wise attention, which Sally talked about. But the sutta is, he says, bhikkhus, I say that there is an exhaustion, an abandonment of taints, is one of the ways this word is translated, asavas, in one who knows and sees, not in one who does not know and see. Who knows and sees what? Wise attention and unwise attention. And this is a thread through this whole sutta. When one attends unwisely, both the, and this is also the, the shorthand for wise effort, when we attend unwisely, it feeds arisen unwholesome states. And, and, and the things he's going to talk about will just give us ways to look at that. Or it even brings unwholesome states that aren't present into existence in the moment. When we attend wisely, if there's unwholesome states present, it starves them. It doesn't increase them. And it, doesn't, and it can bring more wholesome states to be, and it doesn't arouse unwholesome states. Otherwise, just, just stick with feeding and starving. That's easy. <laughs> Don't make yourselves crazy with it. And so the first, I'm not going to list all seven, because then you'll just try and remember it. But I'll, I'll go through them one at a time. <laughs> but the first one is um, asavas that are abandoned by insight, really. And so this is obvious. This is what we've been practicing here, seeing, seeing clearly the way things are. But what I want to highlight in this is his description, again, of um, wise attention. Because he says, one, and I think Sally read some of this when, uh, I forget which talk, but a while ago. He says, one who is unskilled in the Dhamma, undisciplined, does not understand what things are fit for attention and what things are not fit for attention. And this is a really interesting concept to me. Because since we don't understand, if you don't understand that you don't attend to the things that are fit, you attend to the things that are unfit. So what tends to happen in my mind is to think there's a list of things that are fit for attention, right? Which are those? There's a list of things that are not good to pay attention to, which are those? But it's not that, of course. It's not in the object at all. 
It's not inherent in any particular thing that that thing is not fit for attention. The fitness or unfitness is in, obviously, the wise attention, the quality of attention itself. And so this is what we've been saying all along in terms of noticing the attitude, the quality in the mind that's paying attention. So, and if you can't tell that, you can tell the effect. If what you're paying attention to, not just in the first moment, but over a longer period of time, sense desire, wanting to be and ignorance, arise and get stronger. There's some way in how you're paying attention that it's unwise attention. If they lessen or don't arise, then there's some way you are paying attention that it's wise attention. And I'll, I'll give examples. The one that Sally, uh, that he mentions here that she used in her talk was very much about views of existence or non-existence, thinking, which was, she read this, I'll just briefly read it. How he attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I? How was I? Having been what? What did I become? Will I be in the future? What will I be in the future? You can get the drift. That's not really, doesn't seem like rocket science that that's not really going in a helpful direction, right? But when we're in it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Now, let me just think about this. How will I be at the end of this retreat? What's going to happen? And I've, how many of you have already been thinking about, whether you're leaving tomorrow or in six weeks, I don't care. How amazing am I going to be at the end of this retreat? How can I impress people with my incredible insight on a good day, on a good moment, right? Bad moment, end of the retreat. God, how am I going to hide from people? But I'm worse of a mess than I went. How will I ever explain? Oh, that's the same thing. Not so fit for attention. Not so fit for attention. But let me give you another way, a, a more basic, that I personally find fascinating. Not just on the level of thought, but on the level of sense experience. And again, some of this we've said before. An example. Say there's a sound here in the hall. And that sound, maybe it's a ticking clock. This happened one years ago at some retreat. I think the clock we had up here ticked, and it would be under here. And some yogi was telling me for days this, this sound was just driving, I don't remember, insane, you know, nuts, ruining my concentration, ruining my... And the more they were paying attention to how it was ruining their practice, the worse it was getting. And they thought, I'm being mindful of how upset I am and how this is ruining my practice. But really, the attention was unwise attention to the repugnant, the unpleasant nature of an object. Unwise because you just keep focusing. This is so unpleasant. This is so unpleasant. This is, you know? And what's getting stronger? The aversion, the ill will. It's just getting stronger and stronger. But we think we're being mindful. Now, sometimes we'll say, turn back and notice the aversion in your mind. But sometimes that doesn't work. In this case, what worked is she just really connected to the purity of the sound itself, just hearing. Just really dropped the resistance into hearing, and the whole rest of it dropped away as just hearing. So sometimes you have to explore. Does giving full attention to that painful sensation feed the hindrances? And as you pay attention to the aversion in your mind, the, the wise attention comes back, the, the, the hindrances get starved, or just paying attention to the aversion, just ramp, ramp it up and get stronger. And if you come right into the sensation, then the mind calms down. 
So sometimes you have to explore. So this very handy thing of what's being said, what's being starved. It's not about I'm good, I'm bad, there's a right, there's a wrong. It's very um, experiential. You just pay attention to what's happening, not with judgment or I'm good or I'm bad. Just let's do this. I'm paying attention to this. Look what happens. Whoa, whoa, maybe not so helpful. In terms of these three, these three asavas, it's said that what feeds or what the sprouts the asava of sense desire is attending to the gratification in sense pleasure. You get a sense of that? It's uh, not only is it pleasant, it's just all of these have a me in it, right? This is really pleasant. And I'm noticing pleasant, pleasant. So how come all of a sudden I want more? And I'm noticing wanting, and it feels so nice. There's nothing wrong with enjoying pleasant, which there's not. (laughs) But the gratification, unwise attention to the gratification rather than just with the pleasant, just with the sensation itself, or with the sense of, wow, liking feels like this, feels like this. This is subtle, but explore it. What feeds the seed of being, the asava of being in one and continued existence, is the same attending to the gratification in what's called exalted states, the gratification in your meditative states that are really pleasant. And this is, of course, we're going to be gratified by it. We just need to really notice that. It's actually called in one form of the corruptions of insight. When there's stages, uh, experiences in practice that are very pleasant and the mind could be very collected or, you know, whatever. Maybe it's choiceless or where it doesn't matter what it is, but it's pleasant. The mind is pretty present. You know it's, quote, good practice, whatever the heck that means. You're noticing pleasant, but there's just that subtle, yeah, now finally I've hit into the good place, you know. And it's just so we're all going to get caught in it sometimes. Don't take it personally. But start to notice it. The corruption of insight is when we don't notice it, and we can just be spinning in that for an extra period of time until it decays, which it will. And then you'll know you were caught because you're really, really bummed out. And so that's how you know you were caught. No problem. But you can see it sooner. And what feeds the... um, Ignorance, of course, is, they say, attending to any mundane thing, which is anything, right? Anything that arises in the, quote, wrong way. But that's actually just when there's delusion in the mind, when we see through the upside-down perceptions, when we're perceiving anything as permanent, the stuff we've talked about, perceiving anything as me or mine, perceiving what can't give us any lasting satisfaction as being reliable, trustworthy, somewhere I can rest you know, and find my home. And the fourth one they always say is seeing what is not um, lovely as being beautiful, something to hold on to. So anytime we're perceiving in this inverted way, that's both, it's both a function of ignorance, but it also feeds further ignorance. So you can see these are subtle. So attending wisely in this, on this one is what leads to insight is just simply this, noticing the attitude in the mind, you know, is there wanting? Is there aversion? Is there confusion? You can't notice the attitude. Notice what's being fed. 
maybe not the first moment. I mean, if aversion is what you're noticing, and you can be aware of aversion, you go, oh, no, then aversion is getting stronger. That's wrong. But you can be with it. Be with it. And you can see it isn't really going crazy. You might see more of it, but it's not overwhelming you. Do you know the difference I mean? Just like I said in the beginning, as you're starting to see, perhaps, more and more and more clinging, and you think, I should have less clinging after all this. But you're actually seeing much more subtle levels that we never even noticed before. And in the seeing of it, you're not being driven by it so much. The seeing, that wise attention, does actually keep the seed from sprouting. Mindfulness is absolutely our protection in this. So that's the first one, abandoned by wise seeing, by insight. The next four are the ones I want to, um, that are more, a little more specific. None of these are news to you, but I just want to point them out. The second one is abandoned by restraining. He says, here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely. And he always says reflecting wisely. There's just a sense we can kind of use a little bit our reflective mode just to notice what we're doing. And we notice we're getting caught up in a lot more sense desire. can kind of reflect, hmm, what's going on here? Reflecting wisely abides with the eye faculty restrained. And then all the faculties restrained. The nose faculty restrained. The ear faculty restrained. And while taints and fever of defilement might arise in a bhikkhu who abides with the eye faculty unrestrained, there are no taints or fever of defilement in him when he abides with the eye faculty restrained. So what does restraint really mean? It doesn't mean going around blindfolded and with earplugs and not letting in any, anything. I have a friend who tried that once, but that's not exactly it. But it is mindfulness, wisdom, satipanya, right at the sense doors. So that when we're with seeing and we have mindfulness, satipanya, at the sense door, we've talked about this a lot, I don't have to go a lot, you know, with seeing, you see seeing, you see form. When we don't, it's judgment in the whole story, that whole papancha within two seconds, right? Hearing, we're with hearing, like that woman with the ticking clock. When she was right with satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom, oh, hearing, unpleasant right at the sense door. It doesn't have to go into feeding the kalesas. It doesn't have to go into all that papancha. I want to read from the Buddha, this great sutta, maybe many of you are familiar, where he, he um, is making an analogy of the six sense doors. So we all know what the six sense doors are, right? Including the mind. He makes an analogy of them to six animals that live in different domains. A snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey. So six very different animals. And he says if you, if you tied each of those animals with a rope, and then you took the six ropes and just tied it together in the middle, so those six animals are just like all tied to each other in a circle, then it's wild, right? And then he says, now, those are like the six sense sense objects. So he says, monks, when those six hungry animals, oh, when those six hungry animals, they're all like fighting against each other. When they grow weary, 
then whichever one was the strongest, they would all have to give way to the strongest, and they'd be pulled along by whichever animal was the strongest, right, going to look for its food. In the same way, monks, whenever a monk, a bhikkhu, a nun, a lay person, fails to practice and develop mindfulness of the body, the eye struggles to draw her her towards attractive objects while unattractive objects are repellent to her. The nose, the ear, the mouth, the taste, the mind struggles to draw him towards attractive objects of thought while unattractive objects of thought are repellent to him. You get a sense of that? We're walking around and they're all, which is the most attractive? Whichever one's strongest pulls us that way. Or which is the most repellent? And whichever repellent thing is strongest pushes us away, whether it's a thought or a physical sensation or a sound. This monk's is lack of restraint at the sense doors. The sense doors are all just open. We go to the pleasant or whatever's unpleasant, and it just is pulling and pushing us around like that our whole life. So what is restraint? In this, seeing objects with the eye, a bhikkhu is not drawn to attractive objects and is not repelled by unattractive objects. Julie, this mindfulness is this protection, this equanimity at the sense door. He remains with firmly established mindfulness as to the body, his mind being boundless, unrestricted. He knows in truth that liberation of the heart, that liberation by wisdom. Just being present with mindfulness, wisdom at the sense doors, not pulled toward the pleasant and repelled by the unpleasant. Present with pleasant and unpleasant, but just not this, you know, the eyes are open, just let me see what I can see. Let me do some walking meditation, you know, (laughs) just looking all around. Let me hear. Different from hearing, just being with hearing. What's that? What's that bird in the distance? What's that sound? Maybe there's something, you know. Maybe I could, what's that thought? Let me examine my thoughts. Which one is the most, you know, repellent? And let me get all caught up in that. (laughs) And then he says, if instead of having them just looped together, you took a really stout post and then tied each of the animals to the post, and they'd all pull on it, and when they got tired, they'd calm down and lie down. So that post is mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the four foundations of mindfulness wise attention, really. So this is sense restraint. And it's true we uh, might make choices of not to just let me see if I can just meet all pleasant and and unpleasant objects with a calm mind, with satipanya. I'll just open. Thich Nhat Hanh says you don't have to throw open all the windows and let in everything and try and be balanced in the middle of it, you know. So here we do practice some restraint, but not because things are bad, but to strengthen the satipanya, the mindfulness wisdom at the sense door, to learn how to do that. And we've been talking about this a lot. I don't think I have to go into it too much more. When we don't, we're off in the papancha, the reaction. But one other hint I did want to give from the Buddha that I also think is interesting on restraint, again on a subtle level, he's talking about seeing here, but it could be anything. So on seeing an attractive form with the eye. And we're, we're sort of, we're, in this we don't have complete satipanya at the sense door, but we're sort of mindful. We can see, so say there's, say there's a person here that you find really 
attractive, really beautiful, really handsome, and you, you keep getting drawn into looking at them. So there's sort of mindful, oh, yes, seeing, pleasant, and you're falling into it. But you're not completely mindless. Then the Buddha says, on seeing a form with the eye, with real restraint at the sense doors, one does not, in that form, grasp at all the features, grasp at all the signs. Like you don't go into it so deeply. Like an example with a beautiful person, maybe there's some woman you think is beautiful, going, okay, beautiful, falling into it. The grasping at the signs would be, well, look how nice the hair is. Look at the clothes. I love the way he walks. Oh, don't they seem dignified? And so you're sort of present. Do you see what I mean? But really kind of getting seduced into looking at all the nice things about it. And that's sucking us in to feeding the sense desire, the details that catch our attention. Not that we hate those, but we just come, okay, seeing. Mindfulness, wisdom, right at the eye. Seeing, pleasant. Contact, seeing. Like Joseph says, just not hating or pushing away, but just explore that difference between it all being out there and just wisdom, mindfulness being here. Keeping it simple really helps in terms of restraint. As I say about Thich Nhat Hanh, don't throw all the windows open. It doesn't mean we don't appreciate the beautiful. But again, and Thich Nhat Hanh has a great line where he says, you know, we can tell the difference between obsessing and getting lost in sense pleasures and appreciating what is beautiful. And what's the difference? Duh, it's back to the wise attention. He says, I think I have it here. We have to distinguish between indulging in sense pleasures and the joy and happiness that we experience when we are mindful and at peace. How to tell the difference? Attachment to sense pleasures brings about suffering and entanglement. Basically, what's being fed? More wanting, more desire, more discontent. Both in the present and in the future. The joy and happiness of a peaceful mind brings neither suffering nor attachment in the present or in the future for ourselves or for others. That happiness can sometimes arise from being with a beautiful, pleasant experience but it just doesn't have the Velcro. It doesn't lead to further wanting, further wanting to be. So I guess I'll say about that. Oh, just this last line from Ajahn Chah. When the nose smells an odor, let it be. Leave it at the nose. So you can take that with any of the sense doors. Just let it be. That's all it is. Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thought. That's all it is. So that's back to that whole papancha talk. I'm not to go into that more. Okay, the third, and I like this very much too. It's, it's in the sutta, it's translated as uh, taints that can be abandoned by using. But it's really attention to the attitude with which we use things, with which we use food, with which we use clothing, with which we use what supports us for a safe and comfortable life. Here, a bhikkhu reflecting wisely uses a robe only for protection from cold, for protection from heat, for protection from contact with gadflies, flies, wind, burning and creeping things. (laughs) So he's not saying, you know, you got to go sit in an anthill. You can protect yourself. And for the purpose of concealing what disturbs conscience. (laughs) 
the same with alms food. And um, this is actually something that uh, monks say uh, when they are about to eat their food. Reflecting wisely, he uses alms food not for amusement or for intoxication or feeding vanity or for making yourself beautiful, but for the endurance and the continuance of this body, for ending discomfort, for assisting with the holy life, considering, thus shall I terminate old feelings, like old feelings of hunger, without arising, arousing new feelings, new feelings of greed, and blameless shall live in comfort and health. Nothing wrong with eating to be comfortable. <laughs> Nothing wrong with wearing clothes to protect ourselves. I live in comfort and health. The same with using a resting place for you know, the purpose of being comfortable, for the purpose of your retreat, for the purpose of protection. The same in terms of using medicine. So these are the four requisites of an ordained person using medicine in a way that's for the benefit of good health. So it's quite sensible to be comfortable, to not have on difficult feelings of hunger or being bothered by insects or conscience <laughs> or for good health. So for us, it's the same. We can look, it's, it's, we're lay people, so of course we use more things. It's not that we need to restrict ourselves to the four requisites, but to really look with wise discernment at the way we use things in our life. What's feeding greed? What's letting greed be abandoned? What's feeling more a sense of me becoming? What makes life just be more simple and a joyful flow? And it's really, I find it a really fun thing to play with. Attention to the attitude with which we use things. Certainly now, now, I mean, it's been a long time, but in terms of the whole environment, and this is not to say, oh, I shouldn't use things, and then the attitude with which you're using things is negativity. That's also not helpful. But to see that, do I take more than I need? Not a should, not that's not it, but really looking and seeing. And here on retreat is a great place to explore it. You know, do I take, I think I talked about food the other time, because that's such a, such a, a big hit on the retreat. But just noticing, I noticed in myself the, you know, in case mind. Let me just take a couple extra pieces of fruit in case, you know. And not only do they rot back in the room, but noticing what's being fed in the mind. And it was not too long, I could see it's feeding anxiety. And then every, should I take more? Should I take, am I going to be hungry later? Should I eat more now, even though I'm not hungry now? And when I realized I'm not hungry now, just don't eat now. So what if I'm hungry later? Big deal. I'm a little hungry, so what? It's so much more simple. It's so much more peaceful. Life is just a flow, you know? You eat when you're hungry, and then when you're not hungry, you stop. I mean, that's one of the things in the terms of the ordained sangha that they can only um, go out for alms once a day and can't keep food overnight. When I was a nun in Thailand, nuns don't have the same um, amount of rules, and you could keep the food overnight. So I, I mean, this is, I had several male friends who were monks in this one monastery, and I ended up with this, <laughs> with this giant, like, tray uh, with a moat around it because ants would get in, so you have to have water all around it with all these extra fruits and extra sweets and all that I could then go and offer to my friends the next day. So it's a little, you know, 
anxiety-producing, complicating, you know. It's just so simple. When we take what we need and let it go, and we're not afraid if I'm a little hungry later, I'll have something to eat tomorrow. Or for me, I, I'm always worried when I go somewhere, am I going to be cold? Extra blankets. I go running around the place, you know, collecting all the extra blankets. Where if I was cold, I could go find an extra blanket. I really don't need to go collect all the extra blankets. Maybe I don't even use them. Notice what's being fed in the mind. The way we dress. How, I mean, not externally that there's some judgment about dressing, but I remember one retreat long, many years ago. It was in Australia, actually, with Upandita. And for some reason, the room I was in, it was some weird place, had this giant full-length mirror. Not a great idea on a retreat. And I had this one dress. I don't know why, but I really just liked the dress. I liked the colors in it. I liked the flowers in it. It was bright. You just need something bright somehow on a retreat, or so I told myself. And I would notice there's nothing wrong with a dress, but every time I wore that dress, I couldn't walk past the mirror without looking at it. And then you don't just look at the dress, you look at yourself, and then you know, and then the complications, complicated. I like it, I don't like it, how do I look? How could I get more? Maybe I shouldn't wear it, yada, yada, yada. Completely unnecessary. The time that I was a nun for a year, you just, we wore white in Thailand, and I had three outfits, one to wear, one to wash, you know, one to be drying and one to be dirty. And it was so great. It was so wonderful just not to have to get involved in all this complexity, all this complication. And I remember when I came back home, and I uh, just living upstairs here, and I remember not long after I had I just have this image in my mind of having my closet door open, trying to decide what to put on that day. Like, oh, my God. This is like, really, it's just so complicated. It's just so much suffering. It's such a waste of mental energy. Obviously, I got over it. But it's like, <laughs> just to experience the possibility of that, how burdensome it can be. So just notice that, how it complicates. And... Something Ajahn Sumedho said once, that when he was talking, he was saying, you know, that the, the mind states of contentment and gratitude are really supportive mind states for awakening. And this sense both of restraint and also this using, paying attention to the attitude with which we use things and just seeing what's feeding greed and put it down. Not because it's bad or good, because who needs the greed? This leads to contentment, and contentment leads to gratitude, where instead of not having enough stuff or not having the right food or not having enough blankets, like, wow, I not only have bed to sleep in, I have a blanket, and there's heat, you know? I'm not in a tent in the mountains in Pakistan two years after an earthquake, you know? Wow. And just not feeding in these simple ways, seeing that it, it, it's, it's much more powerful than just not feeding greed. It actually strengthens the wholesome, the beautiful states. It gives space for them to come up, you know. So that's just something I found really powerful. The next one is called enduring, which I like to think of it more as patience. Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely bears cold, heat, hunger, thirst, and again, 
contact with gadflies, flies, wind, burning, and creeping things. You get a sense of their life. He endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. <laughs> so patience. And he, but you'll see from the next one, which is actually avoiding, he's not being absolutely you have to be patient with no matter what. It's with wise discernment. But generally, the sense of endurance, the sense of patience, well, we've talked about it a lot. It's an aspect of not bringing anything extra, not bringing ill will, not bringing negativity, just, okay, this is how it is right now. Reflecting wisely can be with this difficult experience without adding anything extra. And even though, you know, I go to Pakistan in the cold winter in tents, but as we've said, even being here, there's, on the physical external realm, you have to put up with things that aren't the way you'd have them at home. And maybe now you've adjusted a lot, and maybe hopefully you're tasting a little bit of the joy that can come from the simplicity I was just speaking of, the gratitude and contentment. But still, we've had to bear with, to be patient with or unpatient with things, physical experiences, people not acting the way we want, not getting what we want. God knows our meditation doesn't go the way we want a lot of the time. And seeing how patience is just this willingness to be here. Not because you should, not because that's the right thing to do to be a good meditator, but because we're not feeding then these underlying tendencies to wanting to be something better, to wanting sense pleasure, to ignorance. It's like, okay, this is how it is. Not just because I got to get through it, but because patience is actually a way to strengthen wisdom, to cut through the habit, to feed the kalesa. It's not just, okay, I'll be patient until something better comes along. It's a very proactive, powerful way to strengthen wisdom. It's a big access of practice. So I'll give, actually I'll give, since I'm being a nun, I'll give examples from Asia because Asia's great to practice there is great just to have examples like this. <laughs> but the point is, it's not about like war stories about, you know, what tough times we went through. That's not the point. The point is what's energizing about it is being with the difficult experiences. And they're difficult to me because I'm not used to it. For the people that live there, they're less difficult, but they're also difficult. The Buddha's talking about gadflies and creeping things all the time. What's energizing is that learning that a situation that had been so unpleasant, so difficult, so overwhelming, when we start to meet it with patience, with patience instead of aversion, instead of trying to fix it, and that's the real American mind, let me just fix this, you know, we could get rid of all this stuff. No. You run into that all the time in Burma and Thailand, as a nun in Thailand. Let's just do this. We could fix it. We could get rid of this. No, this is just how it is. You know? No, we could have better food. We could do that. This is just how it is. You think, why is everyone being so obstructionist? But you realize, no, it's actually very powerful practice to be in the same situation a few months later and be absolutely happy with the same circumstances. You know? So I'll just give a couple of simple examples. I was in Bangkok in the hot season. And when in the nuns' clothes, you have like three layers. 
you know, like a, an undershirt and a long, a long sleeve blouse, and then another thing that goes over it, of course, polyester, because that stays unwrinkled, which is somehow very important. And then in a little, little cootie with a tin roof. So when the sun comes up, you're baking in there. I mean, it's like an oven in there. And there's nowhere else to go. There's no fans. There's no electricity most of the time. You think, well, this could be AC. This was a very well-to-do temple. We could have some AC in here. We could have some fans. I can forget it, you know? And I remember seeing the sun coming up in the morning and just go, oh, my <laughs> Another day, and there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere to go. Where are you going to go? Go out in the sun or into your cootie. That's it, you know? There was nowhere... And it was just wore me down, and the food was making me sick. And then it went up to the forest, and that was cooler. Then it was cold. I could kvetch about that. And on the tin roof of that, you know, forest, jungle, they're incredibly loud. You think it's loud here. And this didn't even have loudspeakers like someone was talking about. But just the sounds in the jungle and the toucan lizards, and there's snakes all over the place, and the bugs and cicadas, incredibly loud. And then it came to be mango season. And I had a mango tree right over my kuti and tin, you know, very loud. And they would drop off when they were like hard little rocks. So I'd be sitting there, mindful, mindful, whang! You know? <laughs> I'd jump about 10 feet, you know, oh, right, mango, mango, whang! You know, jump. And that just, you know, go on, it's sporadic, you can't time it, you know, for days. What are you going to do? You know, you have two choices. One of them leads to a lot of suffering. The other one is patience. This is how it is right now. This is Ajahn Sumedho again. I would call this wise attention. He's calling it metta. I'm calling it wise attention. An attitude of not dwelling on the unpleasantness or false of any situation inside or outside of oneself. One is not blinding oneself with an ideal, oh, everything's perfect, everything's lovely. Not that. But instead, one is witnessing the unpleasant in a situation, a thing, a person, or in oneself without creating anything around it. You simply don't let the mind go into thinking, I hate it, I don't want it. Just not creating anything around it. This is wise attention. This is patience. And as I say, when the mind truly relaxes, around experience. It's not just like, okay, I can bear it. That's not patience. It's really this open, connected, relaxed state of heart and mind that truly accepts what's happening. And really, I, I, had, I came to be, in many moments, really, truly happy and at peace in situations that just drove me crazy. And not just for a couple of days it drove me crazy. I'm talking a few months, you know. And so to really see, it really is not the external situation. And the patience, and I guess what was great about practicing in Asia, you, you've made the commitment, so you stay there. You know? And to stay there, you either have to deal with the stuff or just you know, be in an aversive snit the whole time. And so it forces us to look at this. I just want three, to, three aspects of patience on an arousing bodhicitta from Patril Rinpoche. I don't want to talk about them more, but I would remember these three a lot when I'm on retreat. It inspires me. All of these three are to, to help um, arouse bodhicitta. To have patience when one is wronged. Patience when wronged. In other words, not giving rise to anger. 
The second is patience to bear hardships for the Dharma, which you're all doing here. When you're sitting there and your butt is killing you and you say, let me just be with it a little longer. Patience to bear hardships for the Dharma. The third, patience to face the profound truth without fear. That doesn't mean fear doesn't come, but it just means we're just willing to gently, gently reconnect again. Patience when wronged, patience to bear hardships for the Dharma, patience to face the profound truth without fear. The next one, and this shows to me the practicality of the Buddha, is taints that can be abandoned by avoiding. By avoiding difficult, painful, unwholesome things. And this, I think, is so practical, not idealistic. I mean, the things he says to avoid are obvious, but aren't there times we can get in our practice and something is just so intense or you're hurting your knees sitting, you think, no, I need to be with anything. You're having extreme pain and there's this idea in the mind, if I was a good practitioner, my mind just wouldn't move. It just wouldn't move, no matter how intense the pain is no matter how much I enjoy something. Therefore, I'm not going to avoid it. I'm going to go right in. So he says, Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely avoids a savage elephant. (laughs) Okay, he's talking about big things. A savage horse, a savage dog, a snake, a stump, a stump, I guess, so you don't fall over it, a bramble patch, a cesspit, a sewer, you know, Uh, Reflecting wisely, he avoids going to uh, unsuitable places or frequenting bad companions, unwholesome companions. And so in a way it's sensible. The kind um, kind of idealistic thing is I should be the wise companion always and I can be with whoever and they're not gonna bring me back to you know being more greedy or being more aversive because I'm stronger than that. Oh, we're not always stronger than that. It's really noticing without any kind of self-judgment, but what's feeding the hindrances, what's starving them. And so here, what we avoid may not be a savage elephant, but it may be a savage elephant in your mind. You know how we've said sometimes a huge emotional storm can come, and sometimes there's enough mindfulness to be with it, and it's intense, it's almost overwhelming, but in not a really long time, you can see there's, it doesn't go, but there's some balance. You can tell there's a little bit of mindfulness in it. Maybe not a lot, but a little. But then there's other times when it's so strong, you're just completely swept away, can't be present. It's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger, the fear, the aversion, the grief, whatever. And we'll say, back off. You need to turn the attention elsewhere that this is really helpful and supportive. That's what the Buddha is saying. Not just to think, I should be able to be with anything. No. What's helpful? The energy of the fear is so much stronger than the energy of mindfulness. Then redirect the attention to something that can help balance, that doesn't keep feeding the fear. That's unwise attention at that point. Keep paying attention to the fear, and it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and then everything looks dreadful, and you know, you're afraid to step outside, and you're afraid to open your door, and you're afraid, wait a minute, I need to redirect my attention. This isn't wise attention here. And that's what the Buddha's really saying. And sure, we make choices, too. 
here. We've avoided in the way we set this place up. We're not, you know, in the middle of Times Square. We don't have TVs playing like they do in the airport, you know, CNN News running 24-7. In fact, we go to great pains to keep you from finding out anything that's going on, you know, to support the practice. We're avoiding. We're not saying you should be able to do this anywhere, anytime. And if you can't, it's just because you're too weak. No. We're saying what supports you know, our wise attention here? So we don't have super comfortable accommodation, but it's comfortable enough. We don't have incredible rich gourmet food, but we have really good food, almost on the edge of, of too good, you know? Almost on the edge of too much of feeding greed. So wise avoidance, you know? We're not saying, why don't you go out shopping when you're feeling a little bored, you know? <laughs> I think it's good we're in Barry's. If you've gone shopping, you know. Once will do it, you know. <laughs> you have to be in a really bad way to think of something in Barry that you really want, you know. You can do it, but I mean, I've whipped up things in Barry, even not on retreat. And I, I make it up in my mind, oh, I remember that, that line in the supermarket, that row that has this thing. I, really, I did that the other day. I completely made it up. You know, the supermarket didn't have that thing. It never had had that thing. It didn't even have that whole category of things I was looking for, which was cake pans. I, you know, I envisioned the whole row in my mind, driving around like an idiot, looking for this stuff. So save yourself. You don't need to do it. Wise avoidance is really supports our practice. This always happens. Okay, um, the last... There's two more, but I'll tell you the seventh one I'm not going to talk about because that's developing the seven factors of awakening. And Guy has fortuitously talked about that already. But that's the seventh one that, of course, cultivates wise attention and cultivates when the, when the seven factors of awakening are developed completely, well, we are awakened. That's why they're the seven factors of awakening. So this, the sixth one, then, is called removing and he says, the way he describes that is, reflecting wisely, a bhikkhu does not endure an arisen thought affected by sensual desire, by ill will, by cruelty. He abandons it. And so these thoughts, this is actually a very important sutta. It points to, which is two types of thought, which is really fascinating. It's really fascinating to me. It's, it's one we use a lot, where... The Buddha is talking about before he was a Buddha, when he was practicing. So he's talking about his own early practice. And he said, and this is what Joseph referred to last night as, as right thought, the second step of the Eightfold Path, Samasankapa. He said, what if I was doing walking meditation? What if I divide my thinking into two types of thinking? And one is thinking that leads to his own affliction, and that's thinking that is colored by sense desire, by ill will, by cruelty. And the other type of thinking, two types of thought, is the opposite, which is wise thought, that the sense desire changes to renunciation, to non-greed. The ill will changes to you know, non-ill will or metta. The cruelty changes to compassion. But what's interesting is how he describes working this. He didn't set up these two and then say, okay, this is good, this is bad, you know, should be like that. I hate myself whenever these, you know, bad ones come. He walked 
And with this interest, with this wise attention I've been talking with, he said, just let me notice what happens. And this is where if we can just notice, we see for ourselves the abandonment of the unwholesome ones comes naturally from wisdom because they cause us suffering. So he said, let me notice as I remain heedful, thinking filled with sensuality arose. And I noticed thinking filled with sensuality, sense desire has arisen in me. And noticing how it behaves, he said, I notice that it leads to my own affliction, to the affliction of others. It obstructs discernment. It obstructs clear seeing. It promotes vexation. It doesn't lead to freedom. And as I noticed that it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. He didn't say I took out the whip and hated myself. As I was noticing it leads to affliction, it subsided. As I notice that it leads to the affliction of others, that it obstructs discernment, promotes vexation, it's subsided. And then whenever thinking imbued with sensuality had arisen, he would look at it this way, with wise attention, and abandon it. It would, you know, you can sometimes, it just goes by itself. And sometimes as we've seen more clearly this type of thought, so ill will thoughts, cruel thoughts, we know sometimes we can't abandon them or we try to get rid of them with aversion. But that's not looking in the same way. But when we just look and see, oh, when I follow this thought, this is what happens. And we see that clearly, without negativity, without taking it personally. Actually, we can bring in a quality of resolution and say, you know, in the common parlance, I don't need to go there. I I mean, myself, I experienced this very clearly quite some years ago when I first... um, I first got a, came up with a condition. It's actually the reason I, I sit like this that affects my joints and all. And when it was first happening, people didn't know what it was, and I was getting uh, much more uh, ill, much less able to move than I am now. And of course, there's all the fear, and what about the future, and you know that you're seeing the doctors all the time, and they're always you know given all their wonderful ideas about what horrible thing it could be. And I could notice because this went on for some months. And I really saw in my mind, I remember one time I was going down to try and clean the bathtub, and it was really hard to get up and down, and really hard to stretch like that. And my mind goes, oh my God, and this fear, and I'm never going to be able to take a walk, and I'm never going to be able to do this, and I'm never going to... And I saw my mind start, and I just thought, I saw so clearly, I was so grateful for the Dhamma, for mindfulness to watch thoughts. I saw those thoughts, and I said, you know what? One, who knows? And two, I don't need to go there. I really don't need to go there. Just come back and feel the arm moving on the tub, and it's a little stiff, and it's a little sore, and that's all that's happening. And I really could do that over and over. It was amazing freedom of not feeding the fear, not feeding the aversion, not feeding the wanting for something to be different. And it wasn't the whip, and it wasn't you're so bad, it's wisdom. You all have that ability when we look and just see What's feeding these asavas? What's starving them? And so I think this is just a really helpful, that's all I have time for, but a really helpful kind of tool, feeding and starving, not taking it personally, whether we're on retreat or whether we're in our daily life. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.